It's Friday. Welcome to Real Talk. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. It's July 23rd, and this show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. Been with us since day one, answering questions about crypto, providing new insights about financial sovereignty, helping us understand what a blockchain means. Real live humans available to answer your questions, steer you in the right direction when it comes to the future of finance. Sam, can we do like the the reverb thing there? Is it possible if I were to say the future of finance? You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Yeah, we're pretty proud of ourselves right now. We didn't even pra- We didn't even rehearse that. We didn't even practice it. Um, no, I just got I just got a verb on command. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really good. And actually, by the way, a real quick pivot there. Uh, Sarah Hoyles, Samuel Brooks with me this morning. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling? It's, it's a good show. It's Friday. It feels like the week flew by. Do you feel the same way or did it feel like it was dragging? Oh, it was dragging its ass. For you? Oh, yeah. How come? Do you, do you know why? I, I, no. I just I felt like an eternity. <laughs> I, I love my job. I love my job. I love my job. <laughs> it's, okay to, it's, it's okay to admit that sometimes it feels like the week was taking a long time. I don't know why. Mine felt like it flew by, but I did have one of those moments. This well, I woke up. Uh, woke up at about four o'clock this morning. I didn't stay up, but I woke up around four o'clock this morning, and I thought that it was Saturday. And I was, and I was just, I was just like, oh yeah, kind of like stretched out. And then I went, ah, but like, no offense, <laughs> no offense. We've got a great show in store. I'm looking forward to talking to the scientific uh, director of uh, Rezo Center for Mobilizing Innovation. Uh, Dr. Majid Moseni is going to be joining us in just a moment. We've been talking a lot, um, or at least, you know, we haven't been talking a lot about it, but we've been alluding to the fact that, you know, boil water advisories still exist. And we had, we had had some conversation about the Trudeau legacy. And is it fair to characterize this as an age or area of reconciliation? If really there's so much work left to be done and what has the federal government really done anyway? And this is a good news story. This is a remote community uh this is the uh luzke uzdeni uh in uh, british columbia correct and uh what's the deal sir after about 20 years of living under a boil water advisor they're like drinking bottled water for a couple of decades they've finally been able to figure this out they have i mean to look at what was happening there there was a well which when they looked at it they had a single well and it had uh it was muddy and it was subject to e E. coli contamination not only that when they tried to drill two new wells they found elevated levels of iron and manganese so they needed this it was it was dire. You were saying, were you saying there were there were E. coli concerns in that community as well? And I mean, yep. these are real issues. I mean, basic, basic health issues. And um, now they can turn on the tap. You can turn on the tap. And they have reliable, fresh water, clean water for the first time in a long time or maybe for the first time ever in that community. Mm, Right. So 20 years. So we'll figure out exactly what what, uh, you know, what happened to make that happen. This is a village of about 50 people, a community located about 200 kilometers west of Quinell in the center of uh, interior bc we're going to talk to some political leaders uh based out of the province of alberta a little bit later on in the show coming up in about half an hour's time approximately her worship the mayor of the city of st albert kathy heron uh we'll talk to uh, a counselor out of the city of fort saskatchewan ajibola abitoye and uh his worship the mayor 
of the city of Wetaskiwin, Tyler Gandam. They've got this new WIC program. This is the uh, through the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, the AUMA, uh, building welcoming and inclusive communities. What does that look like, and how do you ensure that your community is a, is a welcoming and inclusive community? I'm looking forward to hearing from real talkers as we get into this one. I'd be curious to know what you, what you note or what you're proud of in your community, as well as what you'd like to see, maybe where some of the deficiencies are as well. And then Markham Hislop. Uh, Markham's an old friend of mine. We go way back. Markham and I have, have probably spoken 20 times over the years. He's a, a journalist with Energy Media. He's the host of the Energy Talks podcast. He wrote a book. This was a couple of years ago. If I remember correctly, I think it was 2019, The New Alberta Advantage. We're going to look back on that and then tie it into his most recent piece with the, for the National Observer, revisiting the new Alberta Advantage Oil Sands Net Zero Initiative, not nearly enough. So we'll take a look uh, essentially at what the future of Alberta's oil sands. We call them Canada's oil sands. Alberta probably wants to claim them. Right. Alberta wants to remind the rest of the country. This is not a bad thing. I'm a proud Albertan. Alberta's oil sands, but they're Canada's oil sands, too. They have they have fueled the nation. They have driven Canada's economy for many, many years. So we'll find out what Markham's take is on on what the new Alberta advantage looks like. Alberta Advantage. (laughs) It's, you know, a great band, great band, rural Alberta Advantage, great band, great band. Uh, (laughs) What's your perception of, of whether or not the Alberta Advantage still uh, looks like or what it looks like or what it's been reinvented to and, and et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to have that conversation. You may notice I'm repping my real talk snapback cap. Uh, I was looking at it today in the closet and I, and I thought, you know what? I'm wearing it. I never wear hats on the show. I'm wearing a hat. It's Friday. I'm doing it. And plus, I thought it would be an opportunity to shamelessly plug our real talk merch. Samuel G. Brooks has it there up on the screen. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, let let, let me just paint a picture for you. We have fabulous (laughs) soft cotton real talk T-shirts. We have the real talk ceramic diner mug. Uh, Somebody told us one of the real talkers told us the mug was so hefty. How hefty was it? It was so hefty that when they when it arrived in the mail, they realized that they may actually just put it under their bed to use it the next time, you know, heaven forbid an intruder should enter. They would have their ceramic diner mug to just drop the hammer. And then we have our snapback caps. And I'm really excited to let you know that we, we also had a, had a, one of our team meetings last night and we're getting set to put our vinyl stickers up on the website so those yeah those are going to be the up one in that the next i have couple of days uh, yeah look at this there right you go you've here, got the real talk right hashtag there. the real talk rj you can rep it on your laptops or your notebooks or or your vehicle or wherever you want to put it I'm i'll kinda, actually slap that uh the the bleh, website Website is what I'm trying to say yes. for merch uh, on Twitter and in our live chat. Oh, that's a great, great idea. Um, I was going to say, I don't know. It's not, it's not if you if you put stickers on things, uh, I, it, it's not the word I'm looking for here is vandalism. Um, <laughs> but I I was thinking as you make your way around town or as you travel across the country or wherever you are, if you're in airports or, you know, shopping malls, you know, just the, 
the odd Real Talk vinyl sticker up somewhere to just put the hashtag everywhere so people notice they're intrigued. What is this? What is this Real Talk RJ hashtag? I liked that you were like, so Hoyles, what if I put it on your car? And I said... I did. I did ask you that. Yeah. And I was like, is it already on my car? <laughs> like, am I going to go downstairs and is it going to be on my car when I go outside? I feel like, I feel like it would have been a gutsy move to, to uh, prescribe a sticker to your car without your blessing. Um, but uh, Correct. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Correct. We got an email. Uh, we want to read emails. You know what we're, we're going to do? We're going to make more of a commitment to you, Real Talkers. We're going to make sure. I mean, you take the time to send us these emails literally every day to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And, and you give us so much to think about. You drive our editorial process to a certain degree, which we really appreciate. Sam, I'm just realizing that the, the light's not hitting my face because I have my snapback pulled down so low. Is that drive as a technical producer? Is that driving you nuts? Are you OK with it? I mean, it's it is not ideal I mean, it's, lighting. Yeah, it's, it's not, not ideal. it's not ideal. Like, yeah. you know, you shade. But I mean, like, I could always flip it around and wear it backwards. Yeah, well, but then, you could, but then you know, you're not showing the logo. I'm not showing right? the logo. Yeah, so so I mean, this would not be a smart move. You know, I think your face is just going to have some shade today. Yeah, that's all right. We can throw shade all day long. Trash talk today is uh some of these ones, I'm like, I've had, I've had to start editing trash talk emails because they're just you I, wouldn't. I, well, I I've had to. Like, there's one from uh, there's one here from a guy. You're gonna you'll you'll have to wait to hear it till the end of the show. But he says, don't read my name. He says, um, my coworkers and my manager all watch your show, and uh, and I can't have my name being said on air. Says, but you can refer to me as one pissed off healthcare IT professional. I thought, mm. okay, so so we've got that. But I've I've literally had to go through and say. Can't read that. Can't say that. Can't read that. But still, nothing but hellfire, pure fire coming up in uh, in the real talk, trash talk presented by Local Waste a little bit later on in the show. Claire uh, Allison, rather, took the time to send us an email uh, just a couple of days ago. You remember when, when I talked to Warren Kinsella? I'm not sure if you heard, but Warren Kinsella was on the show. Um, I'm not sure if you heard, but not everybody loved that interview. Not a fan. Not and uh, Allison wrote in after Warren was on. We had I'd, I'd asked him, what do you think? What, how would you characterize or describe the Trudeau legacy? And it's obvious and it's well known that Warren Kinsella can't stand Justin Trudeau. And, and maybe the feelings mutual. I don't know. Uh, this is a guy that was the former aide to former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And Allison wrote in after and said, you know, I didn't uh, get to listen to today's show live. She wrote this after the Kinsella interview. She says, so, so, but when I went back and finally had a chance to hear it, I noticed two omissions in the conversation surrounding Prime Minister Trudeau's legacy, talking about Trudeau Jr., talking about Justin, uh, that I think warrant recognition. From a health policy perspective, neither medical assistance in dying nor supervised consumption sites had national legislative policy infrastructure until Justin Trudeau was in the PMO, the prime minister's office. So while Insight in Vancouver, Ryan, where your brother works, operated under an exemption, uh, the Harper administration, the Harper government repeatedly denied additional requests for similar exemptions in other jurisdictions. Allison says, I'd like to echo what Mr. Kinsella stated regarding Jody Wilson-Raybould being credited for cannabis legalization. And we'd be remiss if we didn't credit Jane Philpott's significant federal contributions of course neither of those women a member of uh, trudeau's cabinet anymore obviously allison goes on to say while both these policies may be perceived by some as controversial as a health care worker i have seen firsthand the dignity that they offer i've seen people die horrific painful prolonged lonely 
deaths. And I've also seen people take control of their lives and take control of their diseases when there are very few options left because of these policies. So both my clinical career and my personal direct or rather my clinical career and personal directives have been changed forever because I now know these choices and personal controls exist for that. I am forever grateful for Jane Philpott's legacy, says Allison. I absolutely love the show. Allison, thanks for that. You can send us an email anytime to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We wanted to remind you today that the team at Friesen Brothers has released their very own barbecue sauces. These are Friesen Brothers branded. They say it could be the world's best barbecue sauce, which I know is the type of claim that people are going to go, oh, that is bold. I had a chance to try them the other day. They might be. They might be the world's best barbecue sauces. These are the Friesen Brothers family of Alberta made sauces, original hickory, chicken and rib and honey garlic, rich and thick, sweet and tangy. I'm just feeling like you could tap the two of you on the shoulder for this one, but maybe I'll give you a second to sip your coffees while I remind you that these are a perfect complement for every Alberta beefsteak, Alberta chicken breast, Alberta fresh veggies, or anything else you try to throw on the grill. Now, through the week, we've been inviting you to pop on by the Friesen Brothers Instagram account on this specific post, the one here that you can see, and, and we've been asking you to leave a comment. We've been asking you to leave a comment on what you would love to throw on the grill to throw on the Friesen Brothers Grill. And we told you that we were going to choose five winners for Friesen Brothers Barbecue Packages. Yesterday, we chose three. And I think today, right now, live on the show, we're going to pick two more. So these are two more winners that are going to be able to swing by the new Friesen Brothers South Edmonton store and grab a Friesen Brothers Barbecue Package. At random, Crazy Chick 2 is the first one I looked at. Says, I might want sheesh kebabs of pork, chicken, and beef. We could test each sauce and debate our favorites. Thank you for the opportunity. Crazy Chick 2, you've got yourself a Friesen Brothers barbecue pack. Congratulations. And how about this one? Let's see. I like this one. Kirsty Mary. Kirsty Mary says she's going to keep it simple with some chicken wings. Chicken wings on the grill. My buddy Laws used to put chicken wings on the grill. A lot of people bake them. A lot of people fry them. He grills them. Fantastic. So, Kirsty Mary, you're our other winner. We will be in touch with you. As a matter of fact, the team at Friesen Brothers will be. Enjoy your Friesen Brothers barbecue sauces. 16 locations across the province of Alberta for more than 65 years. Alberta grown, Alberta owned. Before we go any further, Sam, can you call up that graphic for me when we look at the water advisories, the boil water advisories that are still in place across Canada? I want to give you real talkers a sense and we'll we'll take a look at the numbers here to to get an idea of where Canada is at with regards to addressing uh, really what has been a longstanding and completely unacceptable issue. These are remaining long term drinking water advisories across the country, as you can see, 20 of them. In the province of BC, 20 have been lifted, zero remaining. Four have been lifted in Alberta with zero remaining. 18 have been lifted in Saskatchewan with five remaining. 13 lifted in Manitoba with two remaining. 43 lifted. As we move east with 44 remaining, we take a look at Quebec and Ontario. There's still work to be done. And then into the Maritimes, seven lifted and zero remaining. It gives you a sense of the work that's being done in Indigenous communities 
across this nation. Dr. Majid Moseni is a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering at the University of British Columbia at UBC, scientific director of the Rezo Center for Mobilizing Innovation. And he did a ton of work uh, with members of the Luske Uzdene community to get clean water to that remote BC community. It's a real honor, doctor, to have you joining us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How how did this get on your radar? I mean, how, when, when did you first start working on boil water advisories and why was this so important to you as a professional? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, so my work and my area of research is around water and water quality. Um, so uh, naturally, I've been uh, working in the area of water, trying to address uh, the water quality issues. Um, however, around... Uh, 2007-8, uh, it came to, to our radar that there are many communities across the country that uh, do not have access to clean drinking water. And those are uh, mostly a small remote communities and indigenous communities included. And, and often they are not very far from urban areas, um, half an hour, an hour from uh, metropolitan areas. We feel uh, and we see a lot of communities that uh, face uh, these challenges. The, part, the challenge is particularly problematic uh, in indigenous communities that they have for many years uh, have been deprived of having access to clean water. What has been I mean, is, is there one common theme as you take a look at, at uh, communities across the country that have had these long term boil water advisories? Is, is there one common theme with regards to why those have existed or are there very unique challenges in each of the communities? In other words, different problems to solve. Well, certainly every community is unique. So we can't just apply a universal solution or a cookie cutter solution, as we say, to these communities. But they do have some common um, challenges or attributes, if you call those. Um, certainly being remote is one challenge. Um, supply chain issues. Um, some of these communities are flying communities. You you talked about um, still many communities, indigenous communities in Ontario, uh, having long-term boil water advisories. So those are mostly northern Ontario communities, flying communities. Um, so resources, um, access, these are some of the issues that our small communities and indigenous communities are facing. However, um, there have been um, I would say not appropriate policies in place that allowed these advisories or drinking water challenges to last this long into well into 21st century. Yeah. Can we get into that? What, what, what have those been? Well, some of those challenges, particularly uh, when it comes to indigenous communities, uh, number one has been funding. Uh, not enough funding has been allocated uh, to those to address those uh, challenges. But aside from funding, uh, what really the main issue has been that we have been looking at these challenges from a top-down approach. Uh, we thought that as engineers, our, as policymakers, we know what's best for uh, those situations and those communities. And we try to bring strategies, solutions that are perhaps we learn in textbooks or work in larger urban areas, we try to implement in those communities. Whereas the reality is that the communities face unique challenges and we must be aware of those. But aside from that, we need 
to give ownership to the communities for them to be involved in the in the solution development and that unfortunately had has not happened um, and still in many places doesn't is not happening can you take us into the assignment that you faced and the, and the amazing work that you've done with with this community in particular uh, the luske who's dene community the, do you remember the first time you arrived what did you see what, what did you start to think about how did you process what you were seeing well one thing in general when i started working um, with indigenous communities um, i went to this project with a lot of um, assumptions uh, a lot of perceived ideas but the first time i went to their community uh, it was just basically all those perceived assumptions that they had all those prejudgments that they have were just basically shattered I, I went to the community with the idea that while well, we can easily solve the problem it's, it's not something that uh, cannot be addressed and so on and I, I basically all of those disappeared right away just driving or going to the community in this particular community Luskustene it's a community that perhaps many people um, have never heard of the community. Uh, it's a very remote community uh, in the middle of BC, 200 kilometer west of Queen L, which is the relatively a small town by itself. But out of 200 kilometers, it's about 80 kilometers logging road. This community up until 2008 did not have access by road um, to the community. Uh, still does not have hydro connection. Just recently there was a connection uh, or internet connection, which is very uh, so like a, a sporadic and often fails. So that's the situation in the community. And if you want to drive to the community, you have to be mindful of all the logging trucks that pass by and actually might run over you. So you, you have to actually be very careful going to the community. Most of the time in the year, it's impassable because of the floods, because of the fire and so on. So that's the situation uh, in terms of remoteness. Um, around 2014, uh, we have been approached um, by the, the leadership of the community to see how we might be able to work with them to address the challenges that they face. Um, until then, um, basically at the time, they were using two wells uh, that actually was contaminated, or both of them were contaminated by high minerals, iron and manganese. So some health concerns, but primarily aesthetic, very poor quality, very poor taste, um, and on top of that, the wells were located at, a, at an ancient burial ground. Mm. So the community was very dissatisfied. So what happened, how this happened was that engineers uh, or contractors went to the community without really consulting them. So they picked a location that looked good from so like a technical point of view and they drilled the well. So not only the water quality was poor, but also it was poorly selected in terms of the location. So it was not a very good location or good source for the community. So there was significant dissatisfaction from the community members. So we've been approached to see how we might be able to work with them. So our task was really to listen to the communities, uh, to, to the members, uh, including the elders and knowledge keepers, just to see 
not only what the challenges are, but also what, from their perspectives, what the solution could look like. Hmm. So, and that involved really a lot of interactions, a lot of meetings, a lot of um, assessments of different sources until we came to the point that we selected a source and then went ahead with implementing a treatment system for the community. So, doctor, it's not it's not just, uh, you know, your your standard type scenario where you, you show up to a location, you identify a problem, you come up with a plan, you bring in the backhoes, you start digging and you get to work. When you're talking about consulting with and listening to knowledge keepers and elders, you're referencing an ancient burial ground. There are so many factors at play here that obviously made it a very unique assignment. Absolutely. We we needed to be patient. And what I should say is that the community has been patient. I mean, the community has been in this situation or in that situation for many years. Um, but we needed first to listen to them, to, to really realize what the, what the challenge um, is and from their perspectives, what the solution could look like. That's exactly correct what you said. It's just... It, for many communities, the, the situation has been that engineers or contractors uh, or whoever is in charge just shows up and then do their job and assume that they can solve the problem and pack and leave. And that has been, unfortunately, the situation in here. Mm. So ultimately, you you end up, you and the team, of course, work uh, to, to develop a, a customized solution, right? With a some form of a water treatment plant that, that, that ultimately addresses the needs of the community uh, and its very unique needs and, and provides a system where now uh, community members, young and old, can, can rely on and actually enjoy uh, their water supply. How did you get to the point of, of, of developing it? Can you tell us about some of the unique challenges that you addressed and and how you made that happen? Absolutely. So the, the first um, um, task we had was really to determine where we can get the water or where the community wanted to have their water coming from. Uh, this community has a couple of lakes nearby, and also there is a creek that connects these lakes. Uh, so conceptually, there are very many sources. So naturally, from community's point of view, those lakes and creeks needed to be assessed. They wanted to see how those um, sources can be evaluated. So we took on the challenge of assessing those, both from the quality perspectives, just to see how the water quality uh, changes, uh, how it uh, varies, but also um, in terms of quantity, because some of these lakes, uh, given the, the situation we are with climate change, may not last very long if we start withdrawing from them because there is not enough precipitation, particularly during the summer months. So we had to assess uh, both of these situations, quantity and quality. Um, and at community's direction, we looked at various sources and eventually what was determined that none of those surface waters, as we call them, creeks and lakes, would be appropriate because after a few years, we made run of them or the quality was very poor or unstable. So we went ahead and determined that groundwater at a location that is culturally uh, not sensitive means that there is no um, culturally sensitive uh, or historical um, so like a connection to that location. 
So we drilled the well and it turned out the water quality was a lot better than what it is now. So based on that quality of the water, we assessed what treatments must be in place. And deciding on the treatment, we needed to consider a few factors. As I mentioned, it's off-grid. So we needed to have something that does not require a lot of energy, minimum energy, so we can run with diesel or perhaps down the road with some kind of renewable energy sources. Uh, remoteness of location and supply stores or hardware stores not are, are not around the corner. So for the operator to just run and get the supplies, at best, they have to wait at least a week for them to go to Quinell to get some supplies or basic supplies, let alone if something is was going to get there from Vancouver or Eastern Canada. So supply chain was a consideration for us. Uh, also resources within the community to operate the system. And this is a community of 50 people. Um, and so they don't have a lot of human capacity in terms of operating the system. There is one single operator who needs to operate the system and there is no backup for that. So if he goes for vacation or if he wants to take a break or go to town or God forbid, get sick or something, there's nobody to, to look after the plan. So we needed to consider the system a system that can run um, somewhat passively without really a lot of intervention. So considering all of those, we and through conversations with the community and particularly the operator, we came up with the treatment that is now currently in place. So you, my understanding is that it, it utilizes uh, ultraviolet light and uh, a, a chlorine disinfectant to provide safe, reliable water. It's we've, we've got some comments here on our on our live chat on YouTube. This one from Sharon was a big one. She says, can you imagine bringing home a family member from a surgery and not being able to clean their wound with water from your tap or imagine trying to keep your babies cool from hot weather in a bath and not having water you can rely on? This system sounds like it's working. Um, obviously, pretty rave reviews from people in British Columbia that are keeping an eye on this project. Do you think that and, and will acknowledge that, of course, there will be unique uh, challenges or, or th that listening that needs to happen, et cetera, in each of these communities? But do you think you may have and your team may have determined a solution that could be applied to a number of different communities across the country still facing these longer term boil water advisories? So the technology um, itself is part of the solution. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we had to consider many factors when we were deciding on these particular technologies. So UV technology or um, adding a bit of a chlorine to uh, maintain what we call residual disinfectant. So the water, when it leaves the, the well or the treatment system until the consumer's tap stays uh, treated and there is no chance of recontamination because of the leaks or breakage or anything like that. So those technologies are known. What is important is really how to package them for the unique needs of this particular uh, any particular community. So in this case, um, there were a lot of um, concerns around adding chlorine into the water because naturally um, chlorine is not something that people want to be exposed at higher level. Um, we in cities are accustomed to have our waters chlorinated, disinfected, and we even are used to taste of chlorine to some extent. 
But in remote areas, when people are used to having access to really natural water, if you call it, so the taste of chlorine is not very appealing. Um, so we needed to be mindful of how much chlorine we are adding into the system to make sure that we keep the water clean, but at the same time, we don't have any adverse impacts or dissatisfaction from the community members that they are going to be exposed uh, to chlorine. So um, there are a lot of um, sort of like, uh, measures in place to make sure that those, all of those are happening for this particular community. So to bring this to another community, we need to look at what their needs are what their challenges are and what their wishes are, because that's also very important. If the community does not see their views and their perspectives incorporated into the development or implementation of the solution, there is a lot of uh, dissatisfaction, unhappy experiences, um, and that leads to people not even consuming the water, even if you tell them, or if you, as engineer, I say, oh, the water is clean. What is important is that for them to be involved and to feel that they chose the, the treatment systems and this is theirs to own and operate. Doctor, did you, uh, I mean, I, I would imagine that you probably had had some personal learning that occurred through this. And, and I, if, you know, when we talk to people about the reconciliation process and what it means like and what meaningful action uh, would look like across the country, water advisories continue to surface and, and continue to remain part of the dialogue for obvious reasons. What did you take from this with regards to your own learning and, and how this maybe fits into the reconciliation process? Um, what I learned, uh, there are so many things. Um, uh, the first thing is that there is a lot of local knowledge and a lot of um, deep understanding of their culture and their specific location and geography that exists that we need to be um, aware of and we need to learn. So what I learned is that when I go to community, the first thing I need to do is to listen. Um, I would not uh, go to the community anymore with preconceived ideas that I know things and I want to help. No. It's just something that we need to work together. There is a lot of local knowledge that we need to respect. So that's one thing that I learned. The second thing is that uh, resiliency that uh, we talk often, especially in, in, in the wake of climate change and floods, forest fires and everything. When we talk about resilient communities, Resiliency is something that is not always measured by economic terms from communities' perspectives. Communities have a lot of deep uh, connection to their land and their culture. So uh, resiliency is different or has a different meaning. Uh, and we need to not only be aware of it, but also we need to respect that. Because if we don't incorporate those components into our solution development, that solution is not going to last very long. So these are, I would say, the two main takeaways uh, from uh, my so like exchanges with the community, really listen and really understand their local culture and how they view um, basically the world from their perspectives. In terms of reconciliation, um, I, I think 
One thing is that, uh, of course, reconciliation um, has a broader definition and is, it's, it's embedded into all of our relationship with uh, indigenous uh, peoples. But in the context of water, uh, what is important is for us to understand a lot of mistreatment and uh, inappropriate uh, approaches that we've had with indigenous communities uh, when it came to water. A lot of policies that were in place were wrong and were not appropriate when it came to um, indigenous people and indigenous communities. And that eventually led to where we are with a lot of boiled water advisories, a lot of advisories. And the advisories that you mentioned uh, in terms of numbers, those are just long-term advisories for communities of five and more. And we know a lot of communities, a lot of indigenous people live in communities that are small, um, smaller than five means that there are multiple houses, let's say two, three, four, that they rely on water sources that are potentially contaminated. And those do not come into that statistics. So many people are facing water challenges so that recognizing that we have not done things right in the past, but also moving forward, really working together with them and really bring them to the table when we want to have a solution in those communities. Their voices need to be heard. They need to be involved in decision-making. And that eventually, hopefully, will last into not only better relationship, but also um, better water quality for all communities. Yeah. Dr. Majid uh, Moseni, uh, professor in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering at UBC, scientific director at the Rezo Center for Mobilizing Innovation. It's uh, your perspective is so valuable. We really appreciate you making time for us and congratulations on a successful project. Thank you for having me. You bet. I uh, want to let you know, Real Talkers, we did invite uh, the chief of the Luz Custine, uh community, Chief Lillian Squinas, to join us, and, and uh, she sent her regrets. But uh, what a great story. Really a, a remarkable story. On the developing news front, we're keeping an eye on, on, on the wide world of sports today, Sarah Hoyles. And, of course, it's the, uh, the opening ceremonies for the Tokyo Olympic Games. They're going to be very different Olympic Games, but there's a story making news off the field, so to speak, in Major League Baseball today. Yeah, the Cleveland Indians have announced that they are officially changing their name, and the name is, drumroll please, the Guardians. The Cleveland Guardians. Uh, they say the name will go into effect after the 2021 season. It's been a long time coming. And I thought it was pretty interesting reading uh, some of the comments uh, from ownership and from management. And uh, really, I mean, this is this was one. These these were one of the names where people were going, Cleveland's got to change the name. I right? mean, the logo. It's well, it started with the, the logo, logo change. So so they did they did phase out. The, what do they call him? Chief Wahoo, or I think they called him. The sort of the, the buck tooth. It was like a really unflattering, offensive <laughs> uh, character. Yeah. Of, of a, a so-called Indian brave. Right. And a lot of people said, well, that's got to go. And then Cleveland did move to the, you know, the C logo, et cetera. But, but now they're going to be changing the name. Team owner Paul Dolan said in searching for a new brand, we sought a name that reflects the pride, resiliency and loyalty of Clevelanders uh, went on to say that there was an epiphany said that he experienced. Uh, keep in mind, the team's been known 
as the Indian since 1915, uh, more than 100 years, hmm. says that the owner of the team said that the decision finally resulted after an awakening hmm. and epiphany in uh, following George Floyd's death. That's really? what it was for the that's what it was for the team owner. And uh, the team's president of baseball operations, Chris Antonetti, said that, the, you know, the process hasn't been easy, said it's been complex. It's taken an extraordinary amount of work from people through the organization to help them move forward. So there you go. They'd already done away with the Chief Wahoo logo, uh, but now they will be changing the name at the end of the current ball season. So that's yeah, that's an interesting story. Who's next? You've got the Edmonton Elks now. I, I would like to, and I've said it before, I commend mm-hmm. the uh, the football team here in Edmonton, the Canadian Football League team, for doing just, in my mind, a remarkable job with the rebrand. I think they did an amazing job. And After uh, after needing some, a, a lot of encouragement. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, but there's, you know, it's, I mean, do I really want to get into this? I, tradition is huge for people. And sports are like, you know, sports is like religion to people and and things like logos and colors and names are so intensely personal for people. Right. Then when you start talking about changing the name of a franchise, people get really not everybody, but people get really worked up. The thing that was interesting about the, you know, the team formerly known as the Edmonton Eskimos, now the Edmonton Elks, was that there was some debate. And, and I know and I'm not looking at the live chat now, but I can imagine where it's going to go. People would say, like like people from northern communities, even in Canada, would say, we're not offended by the name. The name's not offensive. Some people, they'd, they'd always, the reporters would always be able to get a couple of people on the record saying, yeah. I think it's a compliment. We're really proud of it. I think it's a compliment. And then generally speaking, you'd have like Natan Obed and, and sort of national voices and representatives of Inuit communities saying, it's got to change. You can't keep it like this. And, and ultimately, I think the team made what I think was a smart business decision. Absolutely. Right. Which is also just a, a smart decision, a wise to respectful decision. And now an opportunity to sell a whole bunch of new merch. <laughs> right. <laughs> to it to, to to reach out to a new fan base, potentially um, to reinvent the team to a certain degree. So now you have the Cleveland Guardians of Major League Baseball. Who's next? I wonder about the Chicago Blackhawks. The the Wirtz mm. family has said, the ownership group there, the Wirtz family has said they're not changing the name. You've got the Atlanta Braves, uh, which, again, I, it's not my position to say, but but I think it, on the list of, if there were a list of pro sports franchises with, with names relating to indigenous communities, the Atlanta Braves weren't always at the top of the list. The Washington Redskins obviously changed to the Washington Football Club. That was that that to me was the most egregious name. The Redskins. It was like what? Um, but the Braves have like the you know the, the tomahawk chop tradition and stuff like that, where you you just go, this is. It's so funny. Growing up, twenty thirty years ago, it just it wasn't. I mean, indigenous people will say, yeah, it's been driving us nuts for years. Yeah, it's been offending us for years. Yeah. But there wasn't, as far as I remember, and again, I was maybe just a naive kid, but, you know, I remember when the Atlanta Braves, uh, you know, back in the day were were a really great baseball team and they'd have these, uh, you know, epic uh, playoff runs and pennant races and things like that. And the, the, you'd get these, you know, tens of thousands of people doing the whoa and doing the sort of the chop, um, 
you know, you think if 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 a if a group of fifty thousand people did that now, you'd be like, oh wow, like this is totally inappropriate, right? But it didn't resonate. It didn't come across that way to mainstream. I mean, indigenous communities, white. I'm sure, took real issue with it with white people. Uh, 20, 25 years ago, which just goes to show how the dialogue, the expectations, maybe the knowledge or awareness around these issues has really come a long way. I mean, maybe people are listening now. I mean, when we go back to the interview that we had yesterday about TB in residential schools, there was a doctor in the early 1900s that said, this is a problem. The conditions in residential schools are appalling. Appalling. And so it's really about what who are we listening to? <laughs> the concerns have been there the whole time. It's like, who exactly. who are we listening to? Exactly. I love that from the good doctor we just talked to. Is job number one was to listen to knowledge keepers and elders. And this wasn't an, this wasn't an issue of, like he said, of an engineer or a biochemist coming in and just saying, uh, you know, this isn't like the rupture of a sewer line in a neighborhood where it's just bring in the diggers, bring in the workers and get to work. There's, I mean, even the fact that the wells were around ancient burial grounds, Right. Makes you kind of wonder why the wells were there in the first place. But I digress. So uh, but still work to be done. These are stories uh, that we want to make sure are on your radar, real talkers. And of course, you can be in touch with us. Let us know what you think about the, the interviews that you're hearing on the show anytime. Uh, before we get into our friends, uh, we're going to be talking about this this WIC program, welcoming and inclusive communities with our friends at the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. We want to remind you why we're so proud to be doing business, to be partnering up with Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. Uh, you know, of course, they've got the raw, uh, you know, beef and chicken and everything else that the dogs love. There's so many health benefits to eating raw, but they've got these supplements as well. This is a big part of what their team offers when it comes to the health of your four-legged family members. They've got the probiotics. They've got the enzymes, the green-lipped muscle oil. It's like like water muscles, not not pipes, not biceps and pecs. Joint and mobility support. Raw fermented goat milk? What does that have to do with pet nutrition? Well, swing out by granddog.ca and you can read all about it. If you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll get 10%. They're going to give you 10% off your first-time order. They deliver to your door weekly in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. We also wanted to remind you that if this is moving season for you and your family, why not go straight to Edmonton's number one portable storage and moving device? It's Alta Moving and Storage. We're so proud to partner with them. They're a family-owned business, and they pride themselves on taking the stress out of that moving experience. They have these pod-style moving containers. You know, these these ones, they kind of look like sea cans. So they'll drop them off at your place. At your convenience, you load them up. You don't have to worry while the truck idles outside the house. You can take your time, move at your pace, the pace that you're ready for. They can even store those pod-style containers for you if you're not quite ready to move to your new place. You can check them out at altastorage.ca and make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. Well, we do, uh, you know, we do a lot of talking about inclusive communities. We do a lot of talking about city building and, and what marks healthy communities. Yeah, sure, we work on that at Real Talk, but there's a bigger group, a group, a, a conglomerate, if you will, of communities across the province that have made it their mission to do exactly that, not just to discuss what welcoming and inclusive communities look like, but to provide a roadmap of sorts on how to get there. 
That's why we're proud to partner with the AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, today as we welcome the mayor of the city of St. Albert, Her Worship Kathy Heron, a counselor out of the city of Fort Saskatchewan, Ajibala Abitoye, and the mayor, His Worship, of the city of Wetaskiwin, Tyler Gandam. To the three of you, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us today. We are really excited that you're having us here today, Ryan. Well, Mayor Heron, why don't I why don't I ask you to kick us off here? When when we talk about welcoming and inclusive communities, we could probably approach this conversation from about a hundred different angles. Uh, yourself leading a council, yourself leading as the elected leader of a city. What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a, there's a definition that I could probably rattle off for you, but honestly. The, the value of having your entire community um, from birth to death in every, every walk of your community feeling that they are included, that they have a voice, that they are engaged, they're safe, safe is a huge piece of this, um, and that, that, that as they turn the corner, as they're walking the streets, that they will be greeted with smiles rather than, um, than fear or <laughs> or discrimination that mm. it, it's just so basic it's just so basic uh, counselor abitoye what, what does it mean for you when we talk about welcoming and inclusive communities how would you define it or how, or how would you interpret that um really ryan um, well thank you for having us um, it is really a pleasure to be here um it really is uh, a situation or a community where everyone can participate fully you know, irrespective of um, where they're from, what they look like, um, who they love. Um, and also they can participate fully without any discrimination and they feel welcome. And there's a sense of belonging, you know? So I think that's what, that's what makes the city welcoming. And, and most importantly, safety, they feel safe. I think um, um, Mayor Hearn just mentioned that, that safety piece is so important because um, if you do not feel safe, you can't, you can't, um, you can't express your full potential, right? So, and so it's just so important for us to, um, for, for that, for, for every community, quite frankly, to be welcoming. Hmm, safety, a, a big part of that. I know that we'll follow up on that, Counselor, in just a little bit. Uh, Mayor Gandam, uh, welcome to the show. It's nice to see your face again. I feel like I haven't seen you in ages, my man. What does what, what a welcoming and, and inclusive community mean, uh, not just in Wetaskiwin, but to you as a, as a civic leader? I think it gives everybody the opportunity to be themselves, to go out, whether it's a community event, uh, if they're going to work, they're taking their kids to the playground and they feel safe and they feel welcomed. Having been in a community where that's not always the case, it's my job as a municipal leader to, to take the lead and to take the charge on that and make sure that the people in my community feel safe and they feel welcome here. And it's really important, I think, for anybody visiting any community throughout the province or throughout the country that they're welcome there. There's absolutely no reason why somebody should not feel safe or feel welcomed in anybody's community, especially their own. Mayor Heron, has has the discussion on this uh, changed or evolved over the years? Has, has our understanding of, of maybe not just what a safe or welcoming or inclusive community looks like, but also how to get there? Has the approach changed or evolved? It absolutely has. I've been I've been elected for ten years now. Uh, in my first term, I, I was I went for a walk with a lady who had uh, 
vision impairments. And she she blindfolded me and forced me to walk around our our downtown. Uh, what an experience to actually try to uh, manipulate the streets and cross a road without um, without without sight. That, and so that was a huge focus. And then and we then there was a big conversation years ago about inclusive hiring, making sure that those with developmental delays have meaningful um, employment within within the community. And so the city of St. Albert and many in in Alberta have policies that now um, provide for that. You know, then then there was gender discrimination. So these things have been in the front of our minds. And of course, now we're talking a little bit more about how we're including our Indigenous community and very much so our Muslim uh, community with some of the recent events. So yes, it continually does change, for sure. Mm. Councillor Abitui, have you have you found that, that, I mean, when it comes to some of these initiatives and some of these programs, does the average community member look to a municipality to impact these changes? I mean, obviously there's probably kind of a grassroots element to this. Um, the general citizens doing their part or doing what they can, but how important is is municipal leadership here? Oh no, it is so important as municipal leaders, um, we took an oath of office to represent all residents, not some, but all. Um, so it is our responsibility to ensure that everyone is included in our policies, in our programs, in our strategies, in our investments, in whatever we do, quite frankly, as a municipality, that we're not excluding anyone. Um, you know, I, I really love this quote by Maya Angelou. She says, do the best you can until you know better. Mm. Then when you know better, do better. better, (laughs) Right. So um, we know better. um, And so I think it's just really important for us to continue to do do the work to ensure that we're not excluding anybody. So Mayor Gannon, what what does this mean? Uh, Like at a ground level or with initiatives, I think Mayor Heron outlined some examples for us on, um, you know, inclusive hiring practices, for example, or resources for people with, with visual impairments or, or persons with disabilities. Uh, what are some tangible steps that you and, and your community members, your fellow counselors uh, in, in Wetaskiwin have taken in the context of welcoming inclusion that, that you've been able to say, hey, this is actually working. This is something that's doable uh, along the lines of the good counselors quote of Maya Angelou. Uh, we're learning and we're doing our best and now we can do better. What has been done? The city of Otasco and we initiated a diversity and inclusive task force <clears throat> that welcomed anybody who didn't feel like they were belonging in the city. Um, we've painted the pride crosswalk. We, we were a part of AUMA's welcome and inclusive communities for well over a decade. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that our council was looking at how we could be a more inclusive community, that we were looking for resources. We reached out to AUMA and found out that we were already part of a tool or a, a program that they were offering where they have a toolkit that helps municipalities um, share and, and have your community members feel welcome. So having that available and we have to, we have to make it so that it's for our community, something that's going on in Fort Saskatchewan or St. Albert, might not be similar to what's going on with Aspen, but we've got those ground level resources to start with, and then we can adapt it to our own community. What sort of an impact does something like painting pride colors through a crosswalk have? I mean, we've seen a lot of people, I don't say a lot of people, but there have been instances where 
the crosswalk's painted, and as soon as it's painted, it's vandalized. I know that these are disheartening stories uh, that we see around the world. Uh, why do you think it's so important? Did you experience any blowback when, when Wetaskiwin did it? 100%. We had people, uh, it was probably 50-50 on the outward expression of whether they supported it or didn't. People drove by and, and honked and waved and celebrated and cheered while we were painting it, and other people scoffed and revved their engines and drove past. So it's kind of a mix of of what we're going to face in the community. Ours is no different than probably most municipalities. We've had burnouts through ours. We had um, spray paint, um, some pretty cruel words across one of the crosswalks. But it, if you let that get you down and, it, and you're not continuing on to make sure that that's what your community is about, then what's the point? So myself and one of the city staff wrote it 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning repainting it so we didn't have the traffic congestion to do it again. But we're not going to let somebody or a group of people who are going to do break stands and spray paint crosswalks in my community w essentially win by letting that happen. I'll continue to repaint the crosswalk and I'll continue to be a part of the community that looks to make everybody feel welcome regardless of who they love. Just so I'm clear, you're saying you, the mayor... Uh, not not you not you dispatched someone at 4 a.m. to go paint the crosswalk, but you actually the mayor you were out painting the crosswalk at four in the morning. For the second year in a row, myself and one of our public works manager were out at four in the morning repainting the crosswalk. Wow. <laughs> so what do you say? Let me I want to ask all three of this, Kathy, maybe maybe you first, because, you know, you hear it. You hear it more than I do. And I hear it quite a bit. People that will say. You know, especially I think at municipal politics, like, you know, keep our property taxes low, you know, make sure that the roads get plowed, make sure my garbage gets picked up. But I don't know if I need all this other stuff. I don't know if I need the pride crosswalks. I don't know if I need all these initiatives. Do your jobs. Make sure the roads get plowed. What would you say to that objection? I say part of my job is and it's it's defined in the Constitution. Municipalities are, are need to provide a safe community. And, and so that is a municipal role. And when we painted our crosswalk, we had a, a group of kids. So the grassroots efforts is always the best. So we had a group of kids, um, cost the city absolutely $0. They bought the paint. We had our public work staff volunteer their time just to shut the road down. And the kids had a blast running around with rollers on the ground. And um, and then uh, two years ago, we did our conversion therapy bylaw to disallow that practice in St. Albert and Fort Saskatchewan just finished theirs as well. Um, and then you go to to the local diner or the Safeway and, and a 16-year-old and youth comes up to you and says, for the first time in my community, I feel like you understand and I'm welcome and I'm going to get curious because this happens. And that's This is why you have three elected at the local level with you today. This is my belief is we can make the difference because we are so close to the people. I mean, Jib said it earlier that we are elected to serve everyone in our community, not just the people that voted for us. Because, you know, the youth can't vote and some people voted for the other guys. But when you get into party politics, you don't see that same representation with at the local level. We are closest to the people. We worship in church with them. We shop with them. We share coffees. We we are the place that this needs to be done and we need to lead it. So 
that's my answer to residents that say, don't spend my taxpayers' dollars on this. And, you know, I point out to them, do you know how much money we spend every year decorating our city at Christmas? And not everyone in my community is Christian. And that's taxpayers' dollars. And that's, for some reason, for years, that has been fine. And now I'm just, you just need to be open to the, the understanding that everyone needs to be included. And we finally have our first mosque in St. Albert. Like, these things have to happen at the local level. Is that new? What? The mosque? Yes, it is new. And yeah. and so what what is I mean that's that's a that's a big deal. Um how, what sort of a, a difference has that made in the community with regards to either discussion or whether with regards to to the openness around people practicing their religion or the dynamic in the community? What sort of an impact has the opening of that mosque had in, in, in the city of St. Albert? You know what? That's a good question and I, I have a, I don't have a good answer because to tell you the truth, St. Albert is, um, I call it monochromatic quite often. We, we are this, this community on the outskirts of Edmonton that generally has a, um, a little bit of a higher education and, 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 and income. And we don't have a lot of visible um, differences. And so when the mosque opened up, they did it very quietly. And I don't think a lot of people in St. Albert are even aware that we have one now. Hmm. And I think they did it quietly on purpose, which makes me sad. I was just going to say, I was going to ask if that makes you sad. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Jib, counselor, I, I'm going to say, Jib, I know everyone calls you Jib. I feel weird to say I should call you counselor. You're an elected official. I should call you counselor. But you're nodding. Why are you call me Jibs. Jibs. Like <laughs> <laughs> but, but why are you, why you, you look like, I mean, when, when you hear Mayor Heron uh, talking like that and you're nodding as, as, as though you have some insight there, what, what is it? What prompted that response right. for you? So um, maybe I should share this. First of all, I'm an immigrant. I immigrated to Canada from Nigeria nine years ago. Right. And I'd like to say, first of all, that things have changed um, since nine years ago. Um, five years after I immigrated, I ran in an election. Um, I didn't think it was possible for a black woman to win, but I became the first black woman elected in any level of government in Alberta since the 70s. Wow. <laughs> I have to take a few seconds of silence there. The first one was in 1974, Vanetta Anderson, she was a city councillor in, in Calgary. Um, it's not like people are not trying, people are trying, but um, it's not happening. But we made progress in that, we're having these conversations right now. These are things we, we didn't used to have in the past. These are things that were spoken hush-hush in the past. But the fact that we're clearly having these conversations in the open, and I'm not saying it's, just, it's not just about racism. We're talking about ageism here. We're talking about sexism. We're talking about all the isms. You know, how do we ensure that people are not excluded? And yes, I feel really sad that that mosque had to be quietly celebrated. That's a celebration. That's a huge milestone that the whole community should come together and celebrate. Just, and you know, and you know, the city of Fort Saskatchewan passed a conversion anti-conversion um, um, therapy bylaw a few weeks ago. For me, it was just important for us. Like, yes, we've not never had any incidences in our community that we are aware of, but it was just important for us to say, "Look, I see you. I stand with you." It's that simple. We don't have to spend. Um, we don't have to do so many big things. Just the little steps would go a long way. Councillor, when you, 
I mean, you're talking there about uh, about seeking elected office as a, as a person of color, uh, as a black woman in the city of Fort Saskatchewan, and, and the first one to to achieve office in, in a number of decades. And you said it's not that people aren't trying. Uh, do you think, or is there uh, an inherent uphill climb? For visible minorities, religious minorities, um, uh, you know, gender diverse or, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you believe that there are barriers or are there barriers that exist uh, in Alberta right now based on people's identities that would preclude them from achieving office? Do you find it remarkable that you won considering Oh yes. Um, first of all, remember, I was still a, I was still literally a new Canadian when it happened. I, 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 I was astonished, you know, and um, quite frankly, really honored. Um, yes, there are barriers. Um, I'm aware of someone who ran in a municipality in Alberta who got a lot of racist attack. And so, when other people see things like this, they, they're like, no, if this is what I'm going to face, there's just no point. Right. So, yes, there are barriers and there's, there are things that we can do better to you know, help. And I'm not saying, oh, just do it for represent, representation's sake. No. Is it, it is important that we get people who are qualified to do these jobs. But how do we ensure that we remove the barriers that are, that are in front of them? I'll give you a simple example that we did in our municipality. Um, in order for you to sit on a board or a committee, you have to be a permanent resident. Now, if someone that's a Canadian that was born here hears that, they just assume it means that you just have to be living in that community. No. What it actually means is that you have to have your Canadian, um, your, your um, what's it called, your immigration status has to be permanent residence. That means if you are here on study, um, for studying or just on work permit, you can't apply to be on the board or committee, which is a barrier. There's many people that are here just working that would like to serve and volunteer. And so we took that out and made it made the um, criteria just that you have to be a resident. And so we now we see lots of people like the policing committee I sit on. There was no no woman, no person of color. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you that as I, as of today, we have three women and two women of color. Change is happening. Right. So progress. How be it slow, but definitely some progress. Mayor Ganim, what have you seen with regards to other? I mean, it feels weird asking you about, you know, economic benefits or benefits outside of creating welcoming and, you know, I mean, inclusive communities. But I would imagine that the more that someone feels safe in a city or a community or the more that someone feels welcomed or the more that that someone uh, feels as though they have an option of participating uh, whether it's at a community league level or seeking office or what have you, there's bottom line economic benefits too, aren't there? Absolutely. And the province is talking about an economic recovery plan and, and what that looks like. And without strong communities and without strong people in those communities, it's going to take a whole lot longer than what the province is hoping that's going to do. And if we don't, as municipal leaders, encourage that, if we don't have our community members volunteering, coaching, and helping organize the, the local events that are going on. The economy is going to recover awfully slowly if people aren't in their communities spending money, if, they're not, if we're not attracting um, talented, educated, secure people into our communities, 
we're not going to be a successful community. And that drive that that's driving everything that we do in terms of being a successful community. People can uh, check out uh, AUMA.ca. That's the AUMA's website. And you can learn more about this WIC initiative. This is the Welcoming and Inclusive Communities uh, Initiative. Sam, I just wanted to ask Mayor Heron a question, but it looks like maybe we heard feed just dropped out for a sec. Is that right? We'll give her a second here. Yeah, and then we're, we're, we're going to get her no back. No problem. Well, well Counselor, why don't I ask you then, uh, before we get back to Mayor Heron, um, Jibs, what's the, I mean, if, if, if communities don't opt to be a welcoming and inclusive community, if it's not a priority for a community, what, what would you say could be the potential cost of that? I mean, if this is not a priority to a council or to a leadership group, ultimately, what do you think could be the result? Yeah, you know, there's a popular saying that um, you think education is expensive, try ignorance. And I'll say the same thing. You think, just in the same light, you think that having this conversation and doing this work is expensive or it's difficult, try the social impact and the social conflict and the lack of sense of belonging that could result out of this and the lack of economic power and the lack of, you know, there's just so many reasons why we need um, a welcoming and inclusive community. And AUMA has been an amazing support to my community and to many municipalities, you know, um, to provide um, a network for people to come together and provide resources that are available, you know. And I think most importantly is um, the Coalition for Inclusive Municipalities that we all are a part of, um, which is, uh, um, I think, as a part of the um, United Nations. So I think that it's so important for us as elected um, officials to ensure that we make our communities as welcoming as possible, regardless of who it is, how it, and, and how, who the love and whatever, um, um, whatever identity, you know, that they may have. So this is, yeah, and I, by the way, I was, I thought that was really neat to see that uh, this coalition of inclusive municipalities, a national initiative sponsored by the Canadian Commission for UNESCO, right? For the United Nations well, Educational Scientific and Culture Organization. Very cool. Um, Mayor Heron, you can hear me, right? I sure can. Can okay. you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. We, we don't have your camera, but it's no big deal. Uh, you know, majority of people are going to hear this on the podcast. So what 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 would be your sense? I mean, communicating to, to other mayors and councillors across the province right now with regards to this coalition, what, what can municipalities do to demonstrate that they're welcoming and inclusive? sign it like pass a resolution at your council <laughs> get on board it's simple and and uh, there's there's 10 commitments that you have to make and then once you're once you're part of it the same with the welcome and inclusive through AUMA is it's about sharing ideas uh, Jibs shared something that forces Saskatchewan did just yesterday so there, it's about sharing ideas and uh and, and also reaching out to your fellow mayors and councillors when something like your crosswalk gets vandalized. So how do you how do you deal with that? And it's a bit of a support network. But I honestly think that it's just it's so simple. But it's not it, it's it, it's simple, but it's but it's about more than just signing a paper. Right. I mean, yeah, there's 10 commitments you have to make once you've signed. And, and part of that is is an action plan and and. You know, St. Albert's done what we call a, a declaration of inclusivity, and we have it on all our public buildings. Uh, so you're right. It sounds simple, but and it is simple. And and municipalities are leading this this charge, uh, but there needs to be actions coming out of it as well. 
Mayor Gannam, I know uh, we, we've got a couple of notes here from from folks, I think, that are that are either listening or, or watching from from near or in the city of Wetaskiwin and that are talking about uh, the housing issues that your community has faced. And and I know that this has not been an easy one for you as a leader here that maybe you can clarify the details here. But the city of Wetaskiwin has been under a state of emergency, right, with regards to affordable housing or shelter housing um, for, for coming up on probably nine months now and i know that you and your council have have tried to impact change here and 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 a couple initiatives have been voted down so not everything's easy no it's not and we're going into our well it's been nine months since the hub and the shelter were open uh in wetaskiwin back in our civic building our old city hall for the two winters previous we had it opened up as an emergency shelter uh it was opened from november-ish till march-ish just as um an emergency shelter warm place to sleep, um, a warm meal, possibly a shower, get your clothes washed. We had that change this last fall. Uh, we had an HC come in and operating a 24 hour integra- integrated resource hub, um, along with a concentration of our vulnerable population in our downtown core. We ran into problems with graffiti, residents and businesses not feeling safe, um, while we're trying to make sure that our vulnerable population feels safe as well. So it, it is definitely not easy at all. We've got four, the, the hub has serviced about 450 people in the last eight months. And now we're in a position where we had to close it. We ended the lease agreement with the agency. They had been given their 90 days and the uncertainty of what's going to happen come March or August 10th is is left to not only the council, but the community, the province and the federal government on what we can do to move this forward. Um, Kathy had talked about St. Albert and having a higher income and a, a higher level of education. Whereas I come from a city where we have a lower income and a lower level of education and trying to get people who feel safe in our community um, feels like it's a lot harder for a city of 13,000 people to have between 40 and 60 people accessing an emergency shelter and a a safe place to sleep is rivaling that of any big city across Canada. So it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's heartbreaking. And you look to the community and you look to your colleagues, you look to the federal and provincial government for help because we're in a position right now where we're beyond our capability to manage 60 people a night in an emergency shelter or 450 people that are accessing programming for addictions and mental health. Why, why this might be asking, I mean, the question might be too big. This, this might, this might be like, we need six hours to answer it. I don't know, but what has proven to be so challenging about getting those supports in place? Is it, is it a not, multifaceted thing? Not in my backyard. Uh, that simple, hey? It is, it is that simple. When we had looked at a, a, a location to begin with last November before it was, the last resort was our civic building and we declared a state of local emergency because the zoning wasn't approved to operate a shelter in our civic building. So that's why we're under a state of local emergency. Um, but the not in my backyard, when we looked at zoning, a building on the south end of the city, we had tons of pushback. We had, we had, uh, Long story short, um, city delivered a notice for a zoning change, left it in the door. Um, the organization didn't receive it 
until a few days before the actual zoning change, whether that holds up in court or the MGA is clear enough on whether or not that's appropriate for offering notification on a zoning change, I don't know. But uh, we had a church threaten litigation against the city if we changed the zoning on it based on the fact that they weren't notified in time. So if you want to talk about not in my backyard, you're going to get it from residents, you're going to get it from business owners, and unfortunately we saw it from a church as well. Yeah, which uh, there's a great degree of irony there, but I, but but I guess we don't need me to start going off on that. Um, so this is, I mean, a really neat opportunity for municipalities. I'm seeing here on our live chat, people are saying, I'm they're going, I'm looking on the AUMA website right now, and they're saying, I'm, I don't see my community represented. Some people are saying, I'm going to get on that. I'm going to take that on myself today, and I'm going to make sure that my community starts participating, which is absolutely fantastic. Again, auma.ca, uh, Sarah Hoyles, the producer of this show, has put the specific web link uh, out on our live chat on YouTube and we've also tweeted it out from the show's official Twitter account at Real Talk RJ. I want to give each of you a chance to give us something to walk with here and something to think about in the context of, of welcoming and inclusive communities. Whatever you want to put in front of us. This is this is our homework uh, to a certain degree. Uh, Councillor Abitoye, why don't, you, why don't you go first? Yeah, for sure. Um, so when, when this thing first came to our council um, it was really important for us to not just be checking the um, checking our box, but rather to, to be doing the actual work. And so we did have an action plan, which is really still going on. Um, we are really focused on educating our staff and building skills and capacity to ensure that everything we do passes through the eyes of um, an inclusion um, lens. So I think really um, the takeaway here is that um, you know it is important. I think we've emphasized the importance of of inclusion, whether it's in the municipality, whether it's at work, wherever. And people are actually looking for municipalities that are inclusive in order to choose where they lead, work or play. You know, so but as I think people should, people need to start to ask their employers, you know, what are you doing about inclusion? You know, let, let's take that back, you know, ask your employer, what are we doing as an, as an organization? What are we doing as, for inclusion? As a matter of fact, I know someone who was just fired from a bag because she started um, a black network. She and was fired like, um, for starting that? Yes, she was fired. Yes. So, again, let's go back to him. Because, again, it's so important that we educate ourselves, right? And it's so important we stand up for people who are vulnerable and not able to stand up for themselves. And that's why I take my position very, very seriously, because I see it as an opportunity to speak for those who are vulnerable and are not able to stand for themselves. So let us stand for each other. We are human beings. And um, if we don't stand for each other, then we're not, we're not helping posterity. We're not helping our children's future. Hmm. I love that you said that. Ask your employer, what are we doing? I mean, people's expectations are there, right? These are people's expectations. This isn't something that it would be nice to have. Uh, people want to make sure that those supports are in place. Mayor Gandam, something to think about for us over the weekend. I think that if you're going to wait until somebody else leads the charge to make the change, it's never going to happen. And this is going to sound awfully cliche, but be the change that you want to see. <laughs> Beautifully done. Mayor Heron, we'll give last word to you. I've got two. Uh, I think I think it's really important to take the time in your life to 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 meet and, and learn and understand people that are either visibly different or 
from yourself. Um, St. Albert's had some success with our block party initiative. We get people out on the streets, uh, having a hot dog together and getting to know your neighbors. So, just, so it, it dispels some of the myths or some of the preconceived notions you might have about somebody. But I think more than anything, we are heading into a municipal election. And you're going to start, uh, residents across Alberta are going to have people knocking on their doors or you're going to attend forums or you're going to look at brochures, websites, et cetera. Make sure that every candidate that you've cast a vote for has a declaration of inclusion part of their platform. Make sure that they will be making good decisions that will include your entire community. We, are, we have a great opportunity because there's an election coming up and there very well could be a federal election. You could be asking your potential MP, you know, what the federal government is gonna do with the criminal code, et cetera. I don't think hearing pepper spray is the right answer for everyone. We need to actually build these communities. Sorry, I had to have it in there somewhere. Uh, we need to build communities that you don't need pepper spray or you do not need to arm yourself, that you are greeted with smiles and not weapons. Very well said. That's St. Albert's Mayor, Her Worship Kathy Heron, also joined by Wetaskiwin's Mayor, uh, His Worship Tyler Gandam, and uh, Councillor Ajiboa uh, Abitoye. Uh, this is our first time talking, Jibs, by the way, and it's been, a real, it's been a real pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. It's great to see all three of your faces. Can I just say, uh, I really appreciate your commitment to this. And uh, it means a lot. Uh, Mayor Gannam, I'm, I'm picturing you. I have a visual in my mind of you on your hands and knees painting a crosswalk at four in the morning. And I couldn't be more impressed. Honestly, that that to me is that is that is I mean, I grew up hearing about servant leadership. And that's what that is, is leadership and humility altogether rolled into one. And that's what it takes in these communities for healthy, welcoming and inclusive communities. AUMA.ca for more. Thanks to the three of you and have an amazing weekend. You too, Ryan. You got Thanks, it. Brian. That was uh wow. You imagine you're driving four o'clock in the morning, you're driving by and you see the you're, you're like, is that the mayor? Is that the mayor painting the crosswalk? But But I really like that in that it's actually, you know, rubber meets the road yes, literally. Literally. That it's it's actually because you can talk a good game around sure. diversity and inclusion, but like what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. It's it's uh, the the pride crosswalks in particular. Those are always uh, disheartening stories, aren't they? When you hear you know somebody that's that's you know, squealed their tires through the crosswalk or painted slurs and those types of things. I mean, I think that the, the types of people that do that obviously have their own issues, um, insecurities and and bigotry and everything else. Um, here in our home city of Edmonton, there's been this development over the past number of weeks, a place that they're starting to call Pride Corner. Oh, I love it. Which has uh, been fascinating. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. But if you Google Edmonton Pride Corner, you probably hear about it or you could just check out Janice Irwin's uh, Instagram account. So here's the here's the basic and real quick story is there's uh, street preachers, uh, one in particular that's been on the street corner and is, has sort of been spewing some homophobic rhetoric and uh, members of the community decided that they'd had enough. And so I'm pretty sure it's on Fridays, right? I think Correct. I think it's going to happen today, this afternoon again. I'm sure people show up, uh, you know, dressed in the, in the color, most colorful garb they can find. They've got their pride uniforms on and flags and noisemakers and everything else. And they essentially take back the corner. They've had enough of 
the the uh, homophobia spewing from this street preacher speaker. And uh, it's it's turned into a bit of a thing. Uh, there's a, a, a far right so-called news outlet, a media outlet that's that's sort of taken aim at at Janice Irwin, who's an, an openly uh, gay uh, MLA, a member of the Legislative Assembly here in Alberta. And she posted about this on her Instagram and she said, I mean, they've been, you know, they've been taking aim at her and saying that she deserves the criticism, uh, Janice, that she's been getting and that they've been spewing hatred towards the, you know, the religious community and and spewing hatred towards church, which, of course, is is really ridiculous. Uh, but Janice shared a note that she received. And this ties right in to what the mayors and the council were just talking about, which is why it's important for communities to show leadership. This is why a painted crosswalk matters. This is why a pride flag matters. This is why a, a, a ribbon cutting. I don't know if you do ribbon cuttings at openings of houses of worship, but but if you were to do a ribbon cutting at the new mosque in St. Albert or to to show signs of welcoming people to create or to set the table for this inclusive type community janice shared she redacted some of the information but this is a note that she received hello ms Irwin. i am a who knows how old i'm a whatever year old girl that's been redacted uh who's still in the closet as an lgbtq mm -hmm. person i'm a part of a racial minority where the lgbtq community itself isn't really discussed in our culture uh, there's no one in my racial community and family that is an out lgbtq person that i know of and I've been struggling coming to terms with my identity, and I haven't come out to a single person yet, not even my closest friends. And every time I see the guy with those Jesus signs screaming about our sins, I feel like he's yelling at me. And I hate going out to White Avenue with my friends because of this, uh, because it just makes me really upset, and I can't talk to anybody about it. But today, I saw that you visited that corner and held positive signs that didn't make me feel like I was a bad person and didn't make me feel targeted. It made me feel safer knowing that there's somebody representing me in the government who understands empathy and compassion and who's rooting for kids like me. Thank you for helping me feel safe and not alone. Pretty powerful stuff. ML Gay. That's what she refers <laughs> to herself as Janice Irwin. And this can be, I mean, you know, this is not a partisan thing, right? This can be political leadership uh, from across the political spectrum. I, I think it's less likely to happen from some political parties. We just take a look at a recent federal vote on conversion therapy mm -hmm. and we take a look at uh, many conservative MPs and the way that they voted. And I know that it raised the ire of many of their constituents. But when we talk about leadership on this file on, on welcoming and inclusive communities, I think that that's a really relevant one to share and i wanted to make sure real talkers that you had a chance uh, to hear that message go ahead and go ahead and join the 7200 or so people that have liked that post <laughs> on, on, I, I don't think i've ever had 7200 likes on anything on my instagram i guarantee maybe i need to find a little bit more substance <laughs> my instagram's a little pithy <laughs> you need to have goals it's good to have goals it's good to have goals i also love that it's you know a celebration and we, we heard from a uh, two-spirited uh, individual out of Vancouver, mm -hmm. Jay Simpson, a, a while ago. What was that, about a month ago or so? Yeah, during Pride Month, talking about, you know, that joy can be, uh, you know, a type of um, protest. And so I love that, that they're having, they're, it's a whole group of people. They bring signs. They, they bring, uh, like they just bring the party and it's right down on that corner. So it's, it's really neat to see that, uh, that they're not, you know, 
shouting at them at the at the street preacher who is spewing hate they're actually having a party and showing the joy uh and the inclusion yeah no kidding very well said markham hislop coming up in just a moment we wanted to remind you uh that it is picnic season i haven't had a picnic in a while like just a legit like basket blanket ants walking away with the sourdough bread or however that always goes in the movies if you're getting set for picnic season and and you're maybe looking to upgrade your cooler i recommend the yeti if you're maybe looking to add a a a bag to the mix or or some outdoor infrastructure maybe it's not so much picnicking for you it's more camping and hiking or paddling or snowboarding or climbing or traveling campers village is the go-to the Canadians have trusted for years. Two stores in Edmonton, one in Calgary, and always open online at campers-village.com. Most orders over 49 bucks ship for free. Check out Campers Village today. We also wanted to remind you that the team at Park Power is powering our hashtag, Real Talk RJ. Sarah's keeping an eye on that through the show. It's a great way to interact with us, as well as to catch up on past episodes. Park Power wants to help you build your plan when it comes to your residence, your business, even your farm. You get to choose how you buy energy in Alberta, and it's important to understand the details and the benefits of each rate option. That's why they spell it out for you on their extremely user-friendly website at parkpower.ca. You can choose to combine two or more of your residential electricity rates, natural gas rates, your internet. What's a prudential I have no idea. You'll have to go to parkpower.ca to find out more. Don't forget, when you take your business to Park Power, use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. I mean, if you want them to put 70 bucks back in your pocket. If, 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 If you don't care about the 70 bucks, if you'd rather Park Power just hang on to it, don't use the promo code. But if you'd like that 70 bucks back, 2021-RealTalk is the promo code you're going to want to use. Also, a big shout out to the team at Westworld Computers. They are powering our studio. And as you can see on their website at westworld.ca, they've got the new iMac lineup ready to go. They'll ship across Canada. And of course, you can shop in-store on Mayfield Road in Edmonton. For more than 40 years, Westworld has been maintaining and building relationships with their customers, corporate residential a family-owned business at westworld computers well this is a debut this is a debut on real talk and uh as mentioned i think i've spoken to this fine fella probably 20 times and so i'm bracing myself because i imagine that as we check in with the publisher of energy media the host of the energy talks podcast markham hislop he's probably going to ask what the hell took so long to get me on Real Talk? Well, here he is on this Friday, Markham. It is so good to see your face. How have you been holding up? Well, likewise, man. And I, I got to say, congratulations on the success of your show. I've been watching quietly from the sidelines and with the odd DM just to tell you uh, how impressed I was. And uh, boy, you've knocked it out of the park. Good well, for you. Well, thanks, Markham. It means a lot. I mean, you're a guy you've been uh, self-publishing and, and independently pushing out great uh, you know, I mean, obviously, as mentioned, your podcast, but also I know a lot of people have looked to your writing for many years to try to make sense of what's going on and uh, not just in Alberta, but of course, across the country when it comes to energy 
energy trends and markets and some of the challenges as well that, that are being faced by, you know, for example, Alberta's oil sands. What, what caught our attention uh, most recently was your piece in the National Observer revisiting the new Alberta Advantage oil sands net zero initiative, not nearly enough now let's set the table before we get into your piece with the national observer you wrote a book uh what was it markham a couple of years ago i think right 2019 the new alberta advantage yeah the new alberta advantage technology policy in the future of the oil sands and basically what i argued is that the generation of ceos that was there before the current one recognized the climate science or knowledge climate science recognized the need for climate policy and they were ready to begin the job of decarbonizing the oil sands, but not just in response to those uh, imperatives, but also because they understood that carbon pricing is going to be adopted in some of their key markets, the one they want to, they're in now, which is the United States, and markets they want to get into, like uh, Asia. And by lowering the emissions intensity of their heavy crude oil, that actually would give them a competitive advantage and, so they, and, and would lower their costs. So it would made a lot of business sense. It made a lot of political sense and policy sense for them to do that. And so I actually defended the oil sands on the basis of, of climate policy and in the climate crisis. And, you know, then things changed uh, in the energy transition just about the time that the book got published uh, in early 2019. So what were those changes? I mean, were dramatic enough to, to sort of shake the foundation? Well, uh, go back a little bit. We founded uh, Energy Media in 20, early 2015, and we had had a, another publication that we started in 2008. We're, we're veterans at being uh, poverty-stricken journalists. Uh, so what we uh, in uh, the experts, that, uh, our journalism is based on experts. I'm not an expert. I interview experts. And so the experts that we were interviewing were saying, look, the energy transition, these things take decades. And the, it's going to be slow for a while. It's more evolution than revolution, sort of the Vaclav Smeal, you know, uh, view of energy transitions. And so that was reflected in our journalism and in my writing up until, you know, say 2018-ish. And then all of a sudden, things started to change. Uh, wind and solar costs went down. Battery prices went down. EVs started to get really competitive. You could feel the change. And the experts were saying, hang on a second. Things are changing here. Uh, we weren't expecting this. And so the around 2019 is when it really picked up. And a lot of the milestones that we, my experts were talking about, you know, reaching in, say, 2030, uh, suddenly started appearing in 2019, 2020, 2021. And the, the energy transition has just really accelerated. It's grabbed another gear, is what I said in the, in the op-ed. And uh, that changes everything. And it, it changes the calculation about when Alberta oil is going to be facing peak oil demand, when it's likely, you know, there's going to be demand destruction and maybe a loss of demand for uh, for the product. And uh, and so, I, yeah, uh, that, that's why I think it was necessary to go back and rethink the uh, my original thesis in the book. Did you have like at some point, did you have a personal moment where you crossed a bridge, so to speak, in in acknowledging that some of this stuff was for real 
like wind and solar and EVs and, and you know, replacing diesel buses and, and all of these factors, because I know that so many people, I mean, you and I have spoken so many times over the years, Markham, and so many people will say, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, solar's fine, but like it's it's not reliable in the winter or, you know, wind's not going to work for this reason. And then they'll talk about, you know, birds that die and I'm not trying to open up cans everywhere, but you you get the objections. People will say EVs are, you know, they, you know they, they don't have the range that we need and there's not enough charging stations and give me a break. This stuff is not, you know, oil's going to be around. We're going to need oil for 50 or 60 years. And all of this talk about all the other stuff is just head in the sand. Did you have a moment where you went, nah, this is the real deal? I, I kind of did, actually, Ryan. And a lot of it had to do with our switch from uh, written journals, because I'm an old print guy, uh, to uh, late 2019. We started doing a lot of Zoom interviews. And I think we've done over 600 now. Uh, since then. And then we started the podcast in, in 2020. And we've, I think we've got episode 35 uh, up now. And doing the, the Zoom interviews, I started interviewing uh, experts, uh, you know, international experts. So experts in the United States, experts in Europe and Asia, International Energy Agency. And you probably have found this uh, as well, uh, is that even though you may be an independent uh, if you ask people, you know, like high profile agencies like the IEA, uh, they'll give you an interview. They'll, and so I started interviewing, you know, really gold plated, high quality experts around energy issues, climate issues, energy transition issues, technology issues, particularly batteries and electric vehicles. Once you get out of Alberta, my friend, it is an entirely different ballgame. You get a much better sense of how fast the energy transition is progressing and the amount of capital that's being poured into clean energy, clean technology industries. I mean, somebody posted a, a, a story on Twitter. I'm sure you saw it yesterday. Mercedes-Benz now says they're going to be all electric by 2025. Who could have predicted that? 2025? 2025. That, that's what the article said. Now, you know, I haven't followed this up and done any interviews, so I can't confirm it. But let's that it's not given the changes that have been taking place in the international auto industry. That's entirely under, uh, uh, plausible. And one of the things that's, that's driving this is the incredible innovation around batteries. You have no idea what's coming. I interviewed a fellow in um, uh, in uh, the UK, uh, ID Tech X. Um, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Harrop. There you go. Uh, and he was talking about by 2030, we can have thousand mile batteries. We could have EVs that go 1600 kilometers on a chart. Now, I know he's probably pushing the envelope here and these might not be in 2030, but the fact that we're even in 2021 discussing 1600 mile uh, EV range yeah. is phenomenal. And, and so uh, these are the, and this is hardly the, the only innovation. I mean, we just saw the Ford Lightning be introduced a couple of months ago, you know, and it's going to be the base model for the, for the Ford Lightning, the electric F-150 is actually 2,500 bucks US cheaper than the base model of the gas powered F-150. Nobody expected that in 2021. So it's, it's pretty clear from all of the experts that I've interviewed that the energy transition is accelerating and, you know, that has all sorts of implications for Alberta. I'm just reading this piece. It's by Jack Ewing uh, in the New York Times 
Uh, this was published just yesterday, as you mentioned, Mark, and Mercedes-Benz will shift its focus entirely to EVs in 2025. Be prepared to sell nothing but electric cars by 2030. That's wild. That's that's soon. Uh, this is upon us. I think I know the answer to the question, but I have to ask. Uh, you say when you step outside of Alberta and you start talking about energy transition, you get an entirely different narrative. Again, I think I know the answer, but but why do you have to step outside Alberta? The Alberta uh, political narrative has been dominated by oil, oil and gas forever. And then the the and, and I'm not I should point out uh, I am not a partisan, uh, but during the Notley uh, uh, government from 2015 to 2019, I had many experts, conservative and you know middle of the road. Uh, you know, economists, those kind of people saying not late, not least energy and climate policies were good policy. And so that reflected that in, in my journalism. And I think that the, the province was beginning to make the change then. The, the narrative was changing. We were talking about climate change more. We were talking about the energy transition more. And then Jason Kenney and the UCP came along in 2019. And their energy narrative, uh, the political narrative, was, was, I mean, it blew Notley out of the water. I covered that campaign. I went to Notley uh, press conferences and, and watched what was happening on the ground. And it was very clear that her narrative couldn't even come close to, to Kenny's. And so uh, he, you know, as we all know, came into power with a big majority in, in 2019. And he has been, he and his government and his ministers like uh, Energy Minister Sonia Savage have just been pounding this narrative about, you know, uh, defending the energy status quo. And that is all we talk about. In fact, it affects the, the Canadian uh, energy conversation. So that, that's a big, that's one of the reasons why that, that Albertans are, you know, focused on themselves. And as, you know, one of my experts, uh, Dave uh, uh, Collier, uh, he used to be the CEO of, the, of CAP and he was a longtime Shell Canada executive. As he says, we look through everything at everything through the Alberta lens. Mm. Well, other get outside Alberta, get outside Canada. They don't look at the things through the Alberta lens. They look at it through you know evidence and data and, and what's really going on. And that problem, that that Alberta lens is going is causing Alberta problems now because it's slower to adapt to the energy transition than other provinces, other countries, other jurisdictions. And it's going to be a real problem as the energy transition accelerates even faster during the 2020s. I uh, you reference uh, Sonia Savage and I, and I was I was I was uh, reading something the other day and I, I can't remember exactly and I don't have it in front of me, but it was it was talking about the federal government's plan around transitions and this transition allowance, this just transition act. You've been hearing about this where it's sort of like train other workers or train traditional energy workers to to level up and to be able to you know have the skills necessary to continue careers in sustainable energy, et cetera. And I thought that the language um, was pretty interesting. A statement released by Alberta's energy minister, Sonia Savage, quote, the federal government's intention to hastily phase out Canada's world-class oil and gas industry is extremely harmful to the hundreds of thousands who directly and indirectly work in the sector and will be detrimental to Canada's economic recovery. And, and I read that and I just kind of thought, man, it's it, it, it to me almost seems like an intentional uh, misunderstanding and certainly a misrepresentation around what that's all about. If if I have somebody that I care about 
that's a pipeliner or that's you know working on a rig or whatever. Um, and and I'm seeing signs all around me and Markham. You see more than I do uh, that the, the the world is transitioning and trends are going a certain way. Yet they're believing information that would tell them. And I'm going to use a supercharged word here that it's essentially treasonous to talk about transitioning to sustainable energy, that you're f- trying to phase out Canada's world class oil and gas. I mean, non-action to me is the biggest problem and nobody within any level of government, provincial or federal in Canada is working to phase it out. The world is phasing it out. It is happening, right? Well, uh, great minds think alike, Brian, because uh, just before I came on your show, I was writing and uh, putting the final touches to a, a column about that, those very announcements. And so if you look at the uh, press release that was released by uh, Shaman, uh, Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of uh, Natural Resources, uh, he talked about helping people who are, you know, Indigenous communities, remote communities, racialized people, people who have a disadvantage and are having trouble with the, you know, are the ones most likely to have difficulties making the the, uh, the transition to uh, uh, clean energy, clean technology. They're the ones that can be left behind. Let's put it that way. And that's what he talked about. And somehow Sonia T- Savage came out and said exactly, you know, what you quoted. And if you read the your uh, uh, viewers can can go and, and read my column later today, or go to the Alberta government uh, website and read the press release for themselves. But it was like she, she just. This is an excuse to 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 for her to thump her chest and, and make a big pronouncement and pick a fight again with the with the federal government. She talked about how you know the, the hasty phase out of the oil and gas has nothing to do with that. And uh, I mean, as I point out in my column, would a government that wants to phase out oil and gas spend $4.5 billion to buy Kinder Morgan Canada and the Trans Mountain Pipeline and then spend another $12.6 billion to build the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline if it was trying to phase out oil and gas? I mean, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence that this is what the federal government wants to do. What the federal government is trying to do is put, put in place an energy transition strategy that encourages the switch to clean energy and, and clean technology, because that's where the, as you say, that's where the world is going. Look at what Joe Biden is doing. I interviewed a, a, an expert uh, about um, uh, economic uh, relations or international relations, sorry. And she made the point, and you can see it on, uh, on our podcast. She made the point that in uh, electric vehicles, electrification of transportation, batteries, and all of that, this has become the strategic industry of the future. This is the 21st century. China, the United States, Europe, Korea, and Japan are all engaged in the most intense competition to be competitive and to dominate that sector. That's where it's, that's where it's going. And, and as the economy gradually shifts over to electricity and hydrogen for transportation, it makes sense that we actually have a plan to cope with that and adjust as part of, you know, for the oil sands, for conventional production, for, for, for natural gas. And the Kenny government continues to uh, only support the status quo or to promote this, the energy status quo and to resist efforts to manage the transition. 
And in fact, part of the op-ed that, you know, uh, we're talking about is about that. It's about the oil sands because the oil sands on June 9th, they announced that they uh, the net zero to uh, by 2050 uh, oil sands pathway initiatives. So they want to be net zero by 2050. It was uh, four of the biggest oil sands producers and then another smaller company named Make Energy. And the two of the CEOs, uh, Mark Little from Suncor and Alex Purbe from Synovus, also said in a Bloomberg interview that they expect the initiative is going to cost $75 billion and they want the government to pay two thirds of that. So $50 billion to help pay for that, uh, to get the oil sands to net zero. And I said, it's not enough. There are actually three really significant risks or challenges facing the oil sands. Emissions is one. The second is the whole idea of, of peak oil demand, the shift to the electrification of transportation, market destruction is what is what economists call it. And that's a very real threat. So we need a, a, a transition plan to something for post-combustion. And there's already research underway by Alberta Innovates. You and I talked about it in your old show about- What old know, show? Yeah, what old show, sorry. <laughs> uh, about making carbon fiber out of, out of bitch. You know, or making asphalt uh, uh, materials for roads and activated carbon, all kinds of other stuff. So that's the second thing that's needed. And the third is dealing with the oil sands environmental liabilities, particularly the tailings ponds. There's 37 of them with 1.7 trillion liters of, of toxic waste in northern Alberta. Uh, the conservative estimate to reclaim them is $31 billion. There's only $900 million on, in security uh, on hold with the, uh, the Alberta government. So I argued that the federal government has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come to the table with the Alberta government and the oil sands companies and say, if you want federal money, you have to address all three of these risks. Not one, not two but all three. Then once we know that this is has the a higher likelihood of being a sustainable uh, industry, then we'll talk about putting federal money into it. Okay, but hang on a second. So you're you're also though not willing to stick a fork in the oil sands. I mean, you you, you make arguments that there are two reasons in particular why the oil sands could still have a sustainable long-term future, right? Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I'm still bullish on the oil sands, provided they have a strategy for post-combustion, for, for you know, post-peak oil demand. And one of them is that, you know, they've driven their production costs down enormously. I mean, it used to be that a break-even for an oil sands project was, you know, $60, $70, $80, $80 a barrel. Well, now, just to give you an example, Suncor says that its break-even is $35 WTI, and over the, by 2025, they're going to drive that down to $28. So when oil is trade, you know, selling for 70 bucks a barrel, and their break-even is $28 a barrel, I mean, they're enormously pr- profitable. Uh, right now, the oil sands with, at current prices, right now, the oil sands are just free cash flow machines. They're, you know, they're making uh, profits every year in the in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. And uh, you know, if uh, if prices hold during at least the, the next three or four or five years, as many analysts think they will, because of the lack of investment in in production around the world, <laughs> you know, they have the money to fund a lot of a lot of this. So that's that's the first thing. And the second thing gets back to the the. Uh, uh, research I was talking about that's being done by Alberta Innovates. It's called the Bitchman Beyond Combustion uh, Program. 
I had a, a, an article published in the Alberta Views magazine in March. And as part of that, I interviewed a fellow named Alex Walk, who is the uh, uh, is a v- vice president for Zoltec, which is one of the big American carbon fiber manufacturers. And he's been up to Alberta. He's talked to the scientists. He's, you know, he's, he knows the industry really well. And, and I, so I asked him, I mean, is this real, Alex? He said, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no, no doubt that these guys are on track to uh, produce uh, what he called uh, carbon fiber precursor. It's the, you know, the material, the feedstock for the, for the manufacturing process. And it looks like it'll be done in the next, you know, five to seven years. We're very hopeful that the cost will be about half of what it uh, currently is. And he said, uh, in our industry, it always makes sense to locate the manufacturing plant closest to the source of the precursor. So if you make pre, uh, carbon fiber precursor from bitumen, then the place to build the plants is in Alberta. So uh, if this this uh, uh, process can be can be uh, developed in the lab, and it's it's uh, getting closer all the time. They've got a great big grand fiber challenge that's attracted research teams from all over the world. I've interviewed a couple of them. They think the that this problem can be solved. So if we can do that, and then they can do a pilot project, a demonstration project, then a pilot project, and then commercialize it at scale. This is, well, Alberta Innovates thinks you can get three to four times the value out of a barrel of bitumen doing that than if you sold it to a refinery. Hmm. So you could actually make more money, have more jobs, more economic activity in Alberta with a sustainable net zero industry making things out of it instead of, you know, turning it into fuel for burning. That's why I'm I'm a, a bullish on on the oil sands. But there's a lot of moving parts in that, and there's a lot of things that have to hap- have to happen, and it's not a guarantee. Yeah, there were a lot of ifs that, there. Yeah, abs- absolutely. But then you know, there's a lot of ifs in everything in an energy transition during a period of intense technology disruption to to industries. There's all kinds of risks, which is why we have to manage those risks, and that's what I'm basically arguing in my op-ed is that the federal the industry is is uh, only looking at one of its risks uh, and not looking in, not taking seriously the other two risks. Mark, do you think I mean, uh, there, you've, you've put a lot of, uh, of information in front of us and I know that people are appreciating it. I'm watching some of the chatter that's happening as you're talking, but you talk about I want to circle back to you talked about federal investment. And, and did I hear you correctly? You were saying that it, it would require about 50 billion dollars from the federal government to get the oil sands to net zero. Did I hear that number correctly? Well, this is this came out of an, an interview uh, last. I think it was last month uh, that uh, Bloomberg did. I saw it in the Calgary Herald. Yeah, and and so uh, Mark Little was and Alex Purvey were interviewed. They said it would cost seventy. They estimate seventy five billion for the entire net zero by twenty fifty pathways initiative that they've been that they had launched in, on June 9th. And they want the government and to they, pay two thirds of it. Two thirds of it. That's where the fifty billion dollar uh, so, figure comes. So, from. what do you what do you say to people um, on Salt Spring Island, and um, you know people in northern Manitoba and people in downtown Toronto uh, that would be looking for insight to justify fifty billion dollars of federal funds? That's 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 actually a little bit more. It's about the it, it's about the annual budget of the province of Alberta for perspective. Uh, it's about it's it's literally a, about a year of Alberta's operating costs. Um, that's a hell of a lot of money. Can you justify that to people outside of Fort McMurray? 
I, I, if all we're doing is decarbonizing it and you know, re- reducing emissions in, in intensity and getting to net zero by 2050, I can't justify it. Mm. Because I can imagine a scenario where you basically decarbonize the status quo and then the, uh, the peak oil arrives quicker than, than we expect. The uh, decline is quicker and steeper than we expected. And we arrive at 2050 with a bankrupt oil sands. Uh, and, you know, the industry, maybe it's bankrupt in 2040 or 2035, something like that. I mean, you, you, that scenario is not implausible. And so all by itself, decarbonization is simply not enough. If we take the approach that I'm suggesting, then as Alex Walk says, he said, look, I mean, you know, how, ba- how much demand would there be from the North American electric vehicle manufacturing sector? How much carbon fiber would GM use and Tesla use and Ford use and, and on and on and on? Well, probably enough to, you know, to take all the carbon fiber that, uh, that Alberta could produce because right now carbon fiber is expensive. So they think that it's likely they'll have a plentiful supply at half the current cost. So Alberta could become, the oil sands could become an important part of this, the electric vehicle manufacturing supply chain. It could have, in effect, be an important part of the energy transition and of the transition to, you know, the efforts to reduce emissions and meet climate change targets. That's the best case scenario. That's the one we should aim for. We should frame the discussion that way. We should frame the politics that way. It's what we should demand of the oil sands, that they do more than just clean up their status quo a little bit. The status quo doesn't work. That's something that's painfully obvious to me, uh, you know, as a result of my own journalism and and just, well, you know, take a look around. Yeah, common sense. Yeah, this is a period of intense change. And so the status quo isn't good enough. And cleaning up the status quo a little bit in hopes that that's good enough, it's not good enough. So we need we need to and we need a we need a plan to do this. And clearly, the Alberta government and the oil sands CEOs on their own uh, aren't going to get us there. I mean, Ryan, this is you you know the story about Kodak, right? You know, Kodak at, at one time in the late 1990s and early 2000s had had more digital photography patents than any other any other company. It saw the trend coming, but it discounted it. It said, "No, we got lots of time. We're, we're we like our you know our our film photography business. That's our profit center. This other you know we're not going to worry about it." And it got swamped. And it bankrupted. It basically bankrupted the company because the, the management miscalculated. And I think what we're seeing here, this the analogy isn't Blockbuster. It's not Buggy Whips manufacturers. It's Kodak. The the oil sand CEOs can see it coming, but based on their worldview and the way they you know the where they get their data, I think they're miscalculating. And Alberta and Canada can't afford that. Yeah, maybe they should stop listening to the premier. Um, you uh, mentioned refineries. This is just a, a hard swerve. I'm curious to know: Do you have an opinion on the Alberta government buying into the the Northwest Upgrader that refinery? And we haven't really talked about it a whole lot on the show. I know a lot of people. I mean, the the, the energy minister has said that it was a way to mitigate Alberta's losses by buying in. We would lose less. I mean, it's been a pretty much a doomed project, uh, a money suck, a pit, uh, going back to the days of, of Premier Ed Stelmack. And I know it's been an unpopular investment uh, for a lot of people who have been evaluating where Alberta's dollars have gone. Do you have an opinion on the government buying into it? 
I don't have an informed opinion on the specifics of the deal. Uh, I would refer your readers to the, an excellent piece by Professor Andrew Leach that appeared, was a CBC op-ed, I think it was last week, if I remember correctly. Uh, he did a much better job than I could ever do explaining why it was a bad deal and, and, and uh, so on. Right. Uh, I, I would say that just in general, the, the fact that they uh, made that deal is just another example of this is a government that wants to keep doubling down on what Alberta is always done. And instead of spending money on, you know, new initiatives, whether, uh, well, I'll give you a look at from this point of view, how much does this government talk about electricity? Almost never. And it's brought in very little uh, legislation or, you know, policy aimed at increasing renewables or upgrading the grid or bringing in electricity oriented industries, you know, like green hydrogen, those sorts of things. It's not, it's a, it's a, a, a government that's looking backwards. It's focused on hydrocarbons and defending what is already in place as long as it can, slowing down change, resisting change if it can, keeping the you know, forces of change at bay, not looking ahead to where the economy is going, the global economy and where the energy transition is headed. And that investment to me, that you know, the deal with the, the, the refinery is just more evidence of that. Um, if people want to, by the way, we, we did talk to uh, Andrew Leach after that op-ed was published. It was on July 12th. If people want to check out our podcast or they can go to the our YouTube channel and watch that as well. Um, Markham, it is, it's so good to connect with you again. I want to refer people to uh, your site, of course, energy.media. That's energy with an I, energy.media. And don't forget to subscribe to Markham's Energy Talks podcast. Uh, longtime energy journalist. You can follow him on Twitter at politicalham. I've never asked you about your handle. What's political ham? What's that all about? Well, uh, I, I, I was looking for something that was a little bit unusual. Yeah. And uh, I was, so it's a play on my, on my first name, you know, with the ham on the end. And, ah, and uh, yeah, a little signal that, you know, my, my tweets are likely to be somewhat political. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's nothing more than that. Yeah. Good stuff, my man. Well, it's great to see your face again. And thanks for sharing Likewise. your time and expertise with us. Thanks for having me on, man. And again, congratulations on the great show. Uh, you're a pioneer in this stuff and uh, all the best to you. Well, thanks, Markham. That means a lot, especially coming from a guy that's been hammering out independent content for a long time. That's Markham Hislop. You can find him. He's the publisher of Energy Media. And uh, yeah, give his podcast a, a subscribe there and, and rate it and like it and all of the things that mean so much to us uh, means so much to him as well. It's independent journalism is important. Uh, if you like what you just heard here, smash the like button and, uh, you know, I mean, share it around. I think that there's a lot of people I was noticing on the live chat. People are saying, gosh, I know, you know, we, there are people that need to hear about this. There are people that need to be talking about this. Because it's so easy, right, to, to have a certain source of information. It's your trusted source. Uh, and we see it all, a lot of times from politicians where, you know, what do you like about that guy? Or, or why'd you vote for that gal? Well, because they fight for us. They fight for us. So they're going to fight for our industry. Okay. Um, are they doing it with intuition and information? And are they taking smart positions on it? Uh, do they understand where, where global markets are going? Do they understand the nuance? That's why we want to have conversations like this. This is great. Daniel says, incredible guest. Hats off. Not your hat, Jespo. You would lose the earphones. Yes, that's right. I'll uh, keep my hat on. Brenda says, thanks. Patrick says, thanks. James says, thanks. This is great. Marie says she's been following Markham for a long time. 
Sir Hoyle's drawing to my attention that today is a, is a mile marker of sorts when it comes to real talk. Samuel G. Brooks, since day one, eight, betcha. eight months ago today, we went on the air for the Woo! very first time. So there you go. What what episode? Do you happen to know off the top of your head what episode number this is? Two seconds. It's 160-something. Yeah. 160-something. <laughs> so there you go. What's well, good? No, because we don't want to. We don't come in and we're like, you know, this is episode 164 or something like that. But we, we do. We knew the 150. That was one we cared about. We'll probably throw a big party at 200. This uh, is all that was. That time was before Hoyles. Yeah. The, the be- yeah. before Hoyles and after Hoyles. <laughs> That's right. We can't call it before Sarah because then it would be BS. BS. And, and we're not calling it that. That's right. I uh, I had to, speaking of, uh, what, is, what is that? An, not anagram. What is it called? When you have something that's like BS for bullshit or, you know, like it's, what's that called again? The, the uh, oh, an acronym? Acronym. Yeah. Is that acronym? Is that what I'm looking for? Yeah. So I reached out yesterday. This is so, I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. I just, you know, it occurred to me and here we are on a Friday and we're two hours in and why wouldn't I? And I had to one episode one sixty one. There you go. I had to uh, I had to write to the, the team at Skip the Dishes because I had a, a consumer issue that I encountered, mm. and I shortened it to uh, Team Skip the Dishes. And I'm like Team STD. And then I was like, Ooh. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll just take the time to write out Skip the Dishes on this one. <laughs> Maybe I'll just take the time on that one. I wonder how often that comes up in their office. Probably you know not often, mean? but you would imagine like you develop a brand and then all of a sudden that you, you realize that later. Yeah. And, and it sort of limits how you're going to market your company or maybe what the logo needs to look like. You know, go to us for all your. Now, anyway, uh, and now I'm going to hard transition into an ad read. This will require some delicacy. Adam when e. I remind you that the teams of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are ready to hook you up with hot eats and cool treats this weekend. That's right. The Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. If you mention my name, Jespo, or Real Talk, they're going to hook you up with two cheeseburgers for five bucks or two doubles for seven. I think I'm going to take Wyatt. The best thing about when you have a, a five-turning six-year-old is you can buy him the big adult burgers and you know he's only going to eat like a third of them. And then you get to crush a whole. It's like you get an extra, you know, it's it, it's purely selfish. So we will be at the Dairy Queens, one of them, of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park this weekend. The team at Eden Landscaping, I talked to Mike yesterday. Uh, Mike owns and, and operates. He steers the team there at Eden Landscaping. You can find him at landscapeedmonton.ca. I said, he just used a sound effect. I said, so Mike, how's it been going? I said, busy time of year for you. And he just went, <laughs> and I went, out a boy. Their teams are bringing outdoor spaces to life. They work through the, the winter and into the spring with clients that have visions, whether it's Pinterest boards or whether it's photos that they've pulled out of Architectural Digest or whatever it is. People have a vision for how their space can come to life. It's Eden Landscaping's job to make that happen. For more than 20 years, they've been doing it. You can find evidence and examples of how their customers have been completely satisfied. They don't stop till you are at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also wanted to remind you that our friends at Kubi Energy, this is, by the way, we've got some amazing submissions for this solar contest. The Real Talk Ryan Jesperson Net Zero Solar Contest that's on right now. You have until Sunday evening, Sunday night, you basically have until Monday at 2 in the morning Eastern time. You have until Sunday midnight Mountain time. But why wait that long to tell us your solar story? 
You send your entry to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You find all the details at kubienergy.ca slash realtalk. We are awarding, in partnership with Kubi Energy, a free solar setup, no strings attached to one Realtalker. Now, it may be an organization, a nonprofit. It may be a person. It may be a family. We're going to pick our top three submissions, or we're going to go to work on that in the wee hours of Monday morning. And then by the time we roll out Monday's show on Positive Reflections, we will bring you the top three entries. That's Real Talkers when you take over. You will vote for the winner of who's going to walk away with this solar contest, this solar installation. All the details at kubienergy.ca slash realtalk. Enter today some great entries and thanks to everybody that has wanted to remind you the teams at st albert and sherwood dodge know that there's nothing worse than trying to pull a trailer or trying to pull a boat with a vehicle that's not up for the task whether it's the coca or some other highway the last thing you want is for your trailer to start going all over the place because you're trying to pull it with a quarter ton truck or an suv no bueno look to ram like canadians have for years the 1500 half ton the 2500 three quarter ton and that 3,500 one ton heavy haulers that have been trusted for decades. The three-time winner of the Motor Trend Truck of the Year. You'll find the best selection of Ram trucks and the full Jeep lineup at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. We also want to remind you that the team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. We'll prove it in just a second. For a quarter century, they've been working with their business partners, their clients, to customize agreements that work for both sides they grow the relationship as your business grows they want to make sure that you feel like you're being respected as a business partner it's all part of the integrity that characterizes local waste each and every friday we wrap up our broadcast week by blowing off a little steam It's presented, as always, by Local Waste Services. It's a little something we call Trash Talk. All right, last week we asked you for a politics-free trash talk, and this week, well, right back to politics in just a second. But first, this one from Natasha, who says, I've come up with a great new idea for counties to come up with revenue. Trail cams on range roads to catch speeders and those douchebags who dump their garbage all over the gravel roads. A trail cam catches you, and boom, you're fined. You wouldn't believe the crap that I and other county residents pick up. Why can't people recycle? their containers why do people dump garbage on the road why is fast food garbage always all over our land so frustrating i want to see trail cams i want to see fines and then natasha says wetaskiwin county this hint is for you i should have read that one to mayor gandam when he was on earlier today how about this one from tyler the tired nurse he says a haiku a trash talk haiku jason kenny lies does he have a real plan or no clue we suffer that from tyler the tired nurse with the first ever trash talk haiku what about this one from an angry as hell healthcare it professional says the government ignored the advice of the chief medical officer of health pushed on with a closed again open again bend the curve bullshit scenario we my co-workers and i kept the system running we kept the it going we mopped the floors of our hospitals outside our job description we kept the peace when the anti-maskers 
insisted on entering facilities without PPE. We cooked and kept fed thousands of COVID patients. And you know what? Some of us, some of us made sure that we had PPE ready on our own dime. So now you're telling us to take a salary rollback, a 4% rollback equivalent to taking away one of our paychecks every year. So I'm supposed to work for free for two weeks? Some of us are already working two or three jobs to make ends meet. We'd love to get out. We'd love to relax, but we can't afford conservation passes to the parks anymore, even if we wanted to. Did somebody say strike? That from an angry as hell healthcare IT professional. How about this one from Amy, who says, Ryan, why are you not talking about the Twitter account of Ben Harper? Why aren't you addressing it on your show? Along with the premier's other overpaid basement dwelling trolling issues managers, now we've got this patronage position, the policy advisor, the former PM's son making just below 111 grand so they don't have to tell us what he takes home. The guy's got no real world experience. His only job seems to be tweeting out best summer ever photos wearing that stupid UCP hat. Odds are he'll follow in the long tradition of conservatives who have never really held a real job. Jason Kenney, Pierre Polyev, and Andrew Scheer. What really gets my goat is these four succubi of the taxpayer teat are the first ones to mock the fact that our current PM was just a drama teacher and a snowboard instructor. You know what? Those are actual jobs, which is more than you can say for these silver spoon snakes. That from Amy. And this one from Luke. This is one of the longest trash talk emails of all time, but I couldn't cut it down. You remember Garnet Janus, the Sherwood Park MP that tweeted about burning churches? Christians face persecution abroad, flee here, see their churches burned down. Civil Liberties Org say burn it down. And the PM's former advisor says it's understandable what's happening to Canada. Luke says, Dear Mr. Janus, I'm not saying it's okay to vandalize or destroy property, and I know you're dishonestly trying to score cheap political points. What we are saying is it's imp- it, it is possible to imagine lived experiences so painful and so difficult that someone may resort to such an action. Understanding does not equal condoning. In my local community, a great progressive church offered the local LGBTQ group an opportunity to hold regular meetings in the church for free, except they had to stop. Why? Because so many of the young people had terrible experiences in church because of it was a church they were unable to enter they didn't feel safe for some fear and hate runs deep it's understandable politicians fail to grasp and reject the valid life experiences of first nations metis and inuit and the intergenerational trauma of forced conversion assimilation and residential schools it's caused hate Fear, separation, segregation, and disharmony. It's arrogant judgment of others and their beliefs. The Catholic Church has paid tens of millions to victims, more to lawyers to lobby governments to avoid paying, and it almost looks like they're laundering money for the mob. You can't believe persecution you face. You can't understand churches being down. The fact that you lack this knowledge, empathy, or intellect deems you unfit to serve as a representative of your constituents. You should apologize and and resign. That from Luke, who laid it all out there. Trash talk emails are received to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Send them at your convenience. They can be about anything. The shorter, the better. But every once in a while, you gotta rant. Have a great weekend, friends. We'll catch you bright and early live again Monday morning. We'll see you then.